0: Hello, and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of September 9th, Making the Case. I'm your host, Dan Creator here with Dan Belton, as we make the case for credit spreads to both widen and narrow between now and the end of the year. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs, to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.kreter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R at bmo.com value and greatly appreciate your input.
1: The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates or subsidiaries.
0: Well, Dan, it's been two weeks since our last podcast. And I think the theme we were harping on most frequently in that podcast was talking about the stable range of credit spreads and trading in, and That trend hasn't changed in the past two weeks.
2: No, even despite the fairly significant equity market sell-off we saw in the second half of last week, credit spreads remain in this range that we've been highlighting since the mid to end of July.
0: Yeah, to put it in numbers, credit spreads have traded between 124 basis points and 131 basis points since late July, closing yesterday at 130.5. So we're at the upper end. We've had a modest backup of five basis points during the 7% drop in equities that you highlighted. But you compared the performance of credit spreads against equities since the pandemic and the ensuing economic recovery, and you found something interesting in the recent divergence.
2: Yeah, that's right. Since the sell off began in late February, early March, when the pandemic woes were at their peaks, credit performance and equity market performance have moved fairly closely in lockstep. Now, we saw a pretty significant divergence between equity market returns and investment-grade corporate total returns start to occur in late July, early August, when the equity market reestablished new peaks and credit spreads started to flatline a little bit. Now, that trend has been reversed over the past several trading sessions as the equity market, like you said, has declined 7% and credit spreads are only a few basis points wider.
0: So looking at the chart, it argues to me that we should see the correlation between credit spreads and equity prices begin to rise here. I mean, after all, fundamentally, they're very similar assets. They're both risk assets. So we would expect to see correlation. We've seen correlation. And now we've just seen a little bit of a decoupling that is likely to end here. And as a result, maybe we get a bit more clarity going forward about what was driving this equity market sell-off. It could just be that the 7% drop was equities working off some steam after getting maybe a little ahead of themselves in the recovery. And now that they've fallen back in line with other risk assets, we can continue to see risk asset performance, which would be the argument for spreads moving narrower in the next couple of weeks. Or it could be that the recent equity market weakness was more reflective of macroeconomic concerns in the months ahead. That would be a more fundamental cause of equity market weakness. In that case, we should see credit spreads start to widen more meaningfully alongside equities if this risk-off environment continues. Now, today, obviously, uh, risk assets staging quite a comeback. we won't read too much into one day here, but that's worth at least noting. So bring it all together. Despite the fireworks of the past couple weeks, credit spreads really remain unchanged. That That's sort of been our base case, as we expected spreads to struggle to punch through pre-pandemic levels until some uncertainty begins to fade. And with that in mind, uh, we were thinking we'd do something a little different with today's podcast rather than just talking about our view We thought it may be helpful to sort of make the case for credit spreads, either to move narrower or move wider into the end of the year through the lens of four risk factors.
2: Yeah, Dan, we highlighted what we think are going to be the four most important factors between now and the end of the year. And those are, number one, the headlines around the vaccine and the near-term path of the virus. Number two, technicals and seasonal factors. Number three, fiscal and monetary stimulus. And then finally, the presidential election. So Dan, let's jump into it.
0: Okay, so do you want to make the bullish case for spreads to move narrower, or would you like to make the bearish case for them to widen?
2: I'll take the narrowing case. Okay, that leaves me
0: on the the widening case, and we'll start with risk factor number one, which is the virus and vaccine. Obviously, we're not doctors or uh, medical professionals, so we don't have any particular insight here, but we can make the bullish slash bearish case. And leave it up to the listener to decide which he or she finds more compelling. The bearish argument for the virus and vaccine is is relatively easy to make. Uh, heading into the northern hemisphere winter, we've seen really mounting evidence that that being outdoors makes a big difference in terms of virus transmission. Some of the problem areas over the past few months have been in Southern Hemisphere countries, particularly South America, that's been in winter uh, during the Northern Hemisphere summer, as well as more tropical areas, even in the United States. The states that suffered the most during the June-July period were Florida, Arizona, Texas, states to the south of the country where... Yes, it's not winter there, but there is an argument that these states are actually indoors more during the summer months when temperatures can be in the 90s or 100 plus than the more moderate months in the spring and the fall where temperatures are in the 70s and 80s. So you don't see a big viral spread in March, April, May in those states. And then as they move inside with with temperatures reaching 90s and 100s, you see the virus spread more meaningfully. So this evidence we've seen over the summer months just reinforces the idea that we already held that being inside is a major contributor to virus spread and obviously as winter descends upon most of the United States and Europe that would lead to a much more widespread virus transmission. And so if we do see virus cases pick up then the next question is will there be more lockdowns. It appears that where we sit right now governments do not seem particularly willing to to mandate lockdowns but at some point in time health will take over if the virus spreads meaningfully enough. I don't think governments will be given a choice. But even if governments don't take the step of mandating lockdowns, I think there's a pretty high likelihood that people will self-quarantine to protect their loved ones, especially with the view that a vaccine is on the horizon and it will only take a few more weeks or months of quarantine until we get there. I think that's a sacrifice people would be willing to make for the benefit of their at risk loved ones, given the view that there will be a vaccine soon and that we've already gotten through a few weeks or months of quarantine earlier in the year. And then obviously that brings me to the vaccine. Um, I do think significant optimism surrounding the vaccine has been built into risk assets. That's a view that we share, that there will be a vaccine by the end of the year, likely before the election in November. But it's very uncertain. And even the news we've received in the past couple of days on AstraZeneca, having to suspend their trial in order to ensure that a serious illness in one of the trial patients is not attributable to the vaccine. Now, Most recent headlines suggest that AstraZeneca will be able to resume their trial as early as next week, but it just goes to show the uncertainty surrounding the vaccine process and that risk remains, both regarding the ultimate success of the vaccines and the timeline for those vaccines. And I'll finally conclude by saying that evidence is building that Americans may be Less willing to take the vaccine than we originally thought. I mean, we've seen the off-sited study that had as many as a third of Americans not wanting to take a vaccine, citing concerns over its safety. And then another study published in just the past couple of days that two-thirds of Americans wouldn't want to be among the first people to take the vaccine. So there's already a bit of some concern that there could be some buy the rumor, sell the fact with the vaccine based off of it potentially not solving the employment problems, uh, given the lasting impacts on the economy of the pandemic potentially a vaccine that doesn't last for more than a couple of months, isn't overly effective, et cetera. But now in addition to that, we have uncertain timelines and the potential of the vaccine to potentially come later or, or not be taken by, by a majority of Americans. So th- there is a lot of risk around it. And that would be the bearish case. And in, in, in if the bearish case does come to fruition, I could see credit spreads widening meaningfully between now and the end of the year if the virus slash vaccine risk factor goes the wrong direction.
2: Yeah, so in making the narrowing case with respect to virus transmission, I'm actually not going to disagree with anything you've said. I do think that there's either going to be a more comprehensive economic lockdown or an increase in virus transmission rates as the weather gets colder in the Northern Hemisphere. Where I disagree with you, though, is I think that the market is going to be able to look past these near-term economic slowdowns and look towards the vaccine. And the vaccine headlines, I agree there's been a lot of optimism priced in, but once we get a vaccine, I think it's very likely that spreads are going to establish all-time tights. And as we saw last night with the AstraZeneca trial being put on hold there was not much of a sustained reaction in risk assets. They fell a little bit overnight, but rebounded fairly quickly. And I think that's evidence that points to the fact that the market is going to look past this and say that as long as there is a vaccine in the pipeline, whether it's here in December or February or even April, I think the market could be willing to look past the short-term impact on corporate earnings to some extent and to be clear i think there will be some near-term pain for a lot of businesses out there however i don't think it's going to be enough to impact the, the investment grade corporate spread market and for that reason i think there's a real risk that spreads move well narrower than they were just before the pandemic now moving on to the second factor with respect to technicals and seasonals i'll start with the case for narrower spreads here I think that while supply has been extremely heavy since March, it hasn't yet been enough to widen spreads materially. There hasn't really been any sustained weakness in any New Deal statistics that's been specifically attributable to supply, as we've seen in recent episodes. And so I think even though we're going to get heavy issuance into year end, there's enough demand, and the technicals on the demand side are actually, I think, enough to outweigh the heavy supply. I think going back to my previous point about spreads potentially setting all-time tights after the vaccine comes, I think that's front and center in a lot of investors' minds, where if they don't get in at these levels, they might miss a significant rally once the virus is behind us. The second thing in talking with investors that seems to be a common theme is that while current valuations of high-quality U.S. dollar credit spreads aren't particularly attractive right now. Looking around the different asset classes, there isn't much that does look attractive, and there's not much reason to be bullish on many different asset classes. But all things considered, investment-grade corporate debt is not too unattractive, and I think there's going to be continued, almost limitless demand for this supply that we're going to see in the next four months.
0: And I think the bearish case on the technical front must center on issuance, as you talked about. We've seen record issuance in the majority of months since March. I think July is really the only exception. And I don't see much reason to expect that to reverse course here. I mean, if you look at, in particular, August, which was the biggest August in the, in the history of the corporate bond market and the 13th biggest month of any month, when August is typically pretty light, only 32% of August supply came To refinance old debt. That's in line with the long-term average of 28%. What does that mean to me? It means that we're not seeing corporations issue just to refinance old debt, given how low rates have come. In fact, during August, we're seeing corporations continue to issue to build cash reserves ahead of a very uncertain market environment in the fall. And I think that trend's only going to continue while the market remains open for corporations to continue to borrow. Looking ahead to the fall months, there is a reason to be concerned about employment going the other way. A lot of adjustments that businesses have made in order to move things outside and reduce risk are going to become more and more difficult as temperatures fall. And there is a possibility that employees who have been on the payroll through the summer months in hopes that the economic recovery would be sharp and sustainable, if we start to see that recovery waiver, uh, those employees could ultimately head back to unemployment, and we see consumer demand soften, and those earnings streams not be restored, potentially to where many businesses thought they would be, and, and still heavy issuance. So if we if the expectation of issuance will continue at record levels through the end of the year, we really have to be relying upon central bank liquidity uh, to create that, quote unquote, limitless demand that you described. And certainly, I don't think the Fed is going anywhere. But Let's bear in mind that the corporate credit facility, having been extended to the end of the year, is now is now set to expire on December 31st, 2020. Now, that's still a while into the future. But faced with the question right now, will the Fed allow that facility to expire? It seems like the answer today, at least, is yes. Uh, I, I mean, the Fed's basically not buying anything anymore. I think the last week we saw the Fed was at Under a hundred million in purchases, and and in aggregate so far, they've only bought what twelve and a half billion, or right around there. So they're really not making many purchases. That makes sense. It's an emergency facility, and there does no, and there no longer appears to be an emergency. But the existence of the facility is important because it signals to the market that were things to get worse, the Fed would be there to step in. If the market begins to price in, the expiration of that facility, I think spreads widen a little bit because that sort of emergency parachute would no longer be there. Um, then just looking at traditional seasonals, credit spreads historically don't perform well in September and in October. And Part of that, of course, is that is that it's a very seasonally heavy issuance period, but also you start to see investors with less activity going into the end of the year as they look to protect their annual P&L, and certainly this year there's likely a lot of profits in in a lot of portfolios that that have been active in credit spreads, and those profits would theoretically want to be protected. So if we start to see some credit spread weakness, I wouldn't be surprised if you see spread widening sort of accelerate while people take some chips off the table and look for more attractive entry points, maybe in November or December, to set longs for next year uh, ahead of what you alluded to as being potentially uh, historical lows in 2021. So for me, the bearish case is obviously a continuation of record supply and even just slightly reduced demand because of seasonal headwinds or potentially global central banks not even taking their foot off the gas pedal, just lightening up a little bit on the gas pedal. And you could start to see uh, some of that demand start to slow down. And I think this conversation actually segues nicely to our third risk factor, and that is Fiscal and monetary stimulus. Dan, you haven't talked in a while, so why don't you make the bullish case on the stimulus front?
2: Yeah, so to me, this is actually the strongest point in favor of narrower spreads. Like you've mentioned, I think by most accounts, nearly all accounts, monetary stimulus is unlikely to go anywhere anytime soon. You heard Powell say last week that the Fed would. Not prematurely withdraw any support and that the economy would need low interest rates for years to come. There's also a lot of unused stimulus that's in the system. As you mentioned, the corporate credit facilities, I actually view the lack of usage around the corporate credit facility as a bullish indicator. The Fed is All but stopped using the SMCCF. The PMCCF, of course, was never really a factor. But with the SMCCF, the the Fed has purchased less than $200 million each of the last six weeks. And like you said, total holdings are only around $12.5 billion now. However, these facilities are still in place and they're going to act as a backstop. Should spreads encounter any weakness? Specifically, I think even though spreads didn't react too much this past week, it'll be interesting to see how much the facility was used when the data comes out on Thursday. But regardless, I think if we do see any spread weakness into the end of the year, it's fairly likely that this facility becomes extended beyond the end of this year. And even if it doesn't, the market is now aware that the Fed is willing to buy corporate debt. That's something that wasn't a given back in March. So knowing that this backstop is in place is going to be really helpful for the corporate credit market. And also that's not to mention just the massive treasury and MBS quantitative easing, That's played a significant role in inflating financial asset prices generally and has been largely responsible for most of this rally that we've seen in corporate credit.
0: Well, on the bearish side, Dan, I'll admit that it's tough to present a bearish case for monetary policy. I I sort of laid out uh, a bearish argument surrounding uh, the corporate credit facilities in the last section. But even if the corporate credit facility is wound down, the Fed is going to keep rates near zero for the foreseeable future, and they will continue to buy treasuries and mortgage backs in large volume for the foreseeable future. So I think from a monetary policy perspective, it's tough to make a bearish argument. The best I could say is, does that liquidity even matter very much anymore? It's sort of a half-hearted argument because I, I think it does matter. Um, but if things do start to materially worsen, how much more can liquidity do other than just inflate the price of financial assets? But even if that's all it does, that argues for narrower spread. So on the monetary policy front, I agree with you. It it looks like it's going to remain bullish for credit spreads in the next few months and probably the next few years. But where I'll focus my bearish argument would then be on the fiscal side. And this is an argument that becomes easier to make by the day. Um, Despite widespread expectations that we'd have more fiscal stimulus. That hasn't come. Uh, A fifth round hasn't come. And it doesn't seem overly likely it's going to. The economy continues to recover, uh, at least modestly. We haven't seen uh, the economic data turn significantly in the direction. The stock market, we've had a little bit of a sell-off here recently, but nothing that I would think would cause alarm bells for people on Capitol Hill in order to to rush another stimulus package through. So it, it It doesn't seem like we're going to have more fiscal stimulus ahead of the election. If we do, it doesn't seem like it would be very large. At this point, it seems unlikely to me that the Republicans cave to the Democrats' demands. Um, They've held out this long. uh, So anything we would get would be, you know, this idea of skinny stimulus between 500 billion or a trillion. And I think that's really a concern, particularly for the small business front that employs half of Americans, or at least did heading into the pandemic a lot of these small businesses have been relying on fiscal stimulus, either via direct aid from the government through loans or PPP loans, or just through enhanced unemployment benefits that are giving consumers money to spend that they wouldn't otherwise have. The Fed's liquidity programs and massive central bank intervention don't do that much to help small business. They can't access capital markets. They don't get to tap into that limitless demand that you referenced earlier, they still have to go to the bank to get a loan. And there is still some hesitancy surrounding credit risk at banks that might make it difficult to get loans or certainly advantageous loans that allow these businesses to stay operating. I mean, sure, it's a bit of a cherry pick, but you look at the the example we got last week from Cranes, New York, where they had a survey that indicated that as many as two-thirds of New York restaurants are planning to close by the end of the year unless they get more support. Now, yes, it's cherry picking because New York restaurants have not gone back to indoor dining. Uh, They haven't been given that indication that they would. That's an exception, not the rule to the rest of the country where a lot of areas have gone back to indoor dining. But it just shows that there is still weakness there. And these businesses that have been relying upon shifts to outdoors or uh, adjustments to allow customers to feel more comfortable that are made impossible by colder weather, those uncertainties could rise elsewhere in the country as well. And I'm just not convinced that we're not going to see another spike in unemployment in the fall months without more fiscal stimulus. And it doesn't appear that that's going to happen. And then I'll I'll roll it forward to post the election, which we all are assuming because of the coronavirus this year, the election is not going to have a clear winner. Um, It's likely to be contested, and dominate the attention of Congress, the executive branch, potentially even the judicial branch, uh, to figure out who the president's going to be. And in such a scenario, it's hard to imagine a fiscal stimulus package being passed or even, let's say, Biden wins. And, and then we're relying on a lame duck president for a fiscal stimulus package. Um that scenario doesn't seem very promising for more stimulus, should we need it, if the virus does indeed worsen into the fall months with or without a vaccine. So I think I'll concede monetary policy to you, but the bearish argument for me is it's fiscal stimulus that matters at this point, and we're not getting more fiscal stimulus, at least not in the size the economy may need to bridge us to a return to quote-unquote normal with a vaccine in, in early 2021.
2: Yeah, I agree with you that the fiscal stimulus picture is much more bearish than the monetary stimulus picture. The only point I would make in favor of narrower spreads with respect to fiscal stimulus is that back in early August when Congress had a relatively short window to agree on a deal and then they convened and recessed without any agreement, there was a very limited reaction in the market, which tells me that while I agree that fiscal stimulus is going to be very important for the economy. I think monetary stimulus has a greater impact on investment grade credit specifically. And like you said, a lot of these small businesses are the ones most at risk. And while that has a lot of implications for jobs and the economy generally, it has less implications for large corporate borrowers in the market. And for that reason, I think the monetary picture, at least in the near term, can outweigh the lack of a comprehensive fiscal stimulus bill, although I think that will eventually become an issue. So moving on to the final factor is the presidential election. Dan, do you want to start with the bearish case for the presidential election?
0: Sure. And the bearish case for me is simply that the market has not priced in a Biden victory or the potential for a blue wave yet, despite what polls are saying. And then that will ultimately be priced in after the election. Now, that seems... Unlikely given the lead that Biden has maintained so far. But there are a few reasons to think that the market hasn't priced it yet. First and foremost, we might just be trading the coronavirus. I mean, COVID-19 has dominated the market's attention all year. We have an expectation for vaccine headlines coming in October, which if we expect that to be bullish for risk assets, we'd want to hold that in October, even if November might bring along a bearish outcome with a with a democratic victory. So it could be that just election pricing has been dominated by COVID. It could also be that investors are looking through some of these polls with a skeptical eye after the experience of the first Trump election, after the experience of Brexit, that there's just this skepticism that polls are accurately reflecting the sentiment of the nation. And that's something that can be reflected sort of in prediction markets. As recently as this morning, we see a Biden lead in the prediction markets, but it's not as large as we might anticipate given the polls. It's 5743 right now in favor of Biden in the prediction markets. And that's a little closer than the polls are indicating. So there, there might just be the skepticism. And so if the market has yet to press in a Biden victory or the potential for a blue wave, if and when that comes to pass, we could see risk assets repriced meaningfully. The primary reason here would be the impact on taxation The reversal of Trump's corporate tax initiatives, when we cut corporate tax to 21%, Biden favors bringing it up to 28%. Obviously, that's not all the way to 35%, and that's a point that's been made numerous times, but still a 7% increase in corporate tax is significant, even if it's not as significant as a 14% increase. And then where I find the most potential risk, at least for risk assets, is in VP Biden's proposed changes to capital gains taxation and the potential repeal of salt limitations that Donald Trump instituted. I mean, a lot of what's happening with this QE money is that it's flowing to the people that own assets, and they take that money and have to turn around and reinvest it. And where do they reinvest it? Right now, uh, stocks enjoy quite an advantage from a taxation perspective. In that real estate now, state and local taxes are capped. Uh, the deductibility of state and local taxes in the fixed income markets obviously are not earning very much. You have to pay taxes on your interest received. Whereas in In the stock market, you pay some tax on dividends, sure, but you don't actually realize any capital gains until after you sell. And when you do, capital gains are typically taxed at a much lower rate. If VP Biden comes in and increases capital gains significantly and or repeals the SALT limitation that president trump put in you could see that math behind the taxation benefit of equity start to change a little bit and if you see equities sell off uh, my expectation would be the credit spreads would follow suit just because the the, the two risk assets tend to to move together then the other aspects of a potential democratic uh, presidency we don't expect to see biden improve relations between the u.s and china there was some hope that hope is kind of faded and then finally at least to this point in the election cycle, President Biden has indicated that he would favor reshutting down the economy if that was what was recommended by the medical community in order to best combat the spread of coronavirus. So that, combined with the taxation policy, may be even the most impactful policy favored by Biden. If we go back into lockdown, the impact on the economy would be significant and one that's not currently being priced by risk assets. So that's, to me, the bearish case in the election. I'd love to hear the bullish case from you, Dan.
2: So to me, I think there's a lot of uncertainty still remaining around what a Biden presidency would look like. First, like you said, while polls have him as a strong favorite over President Trump, prediction markets have it much, much closer to 50-50. And further, the odds that the Democrats win total control of Washington are likely smaller than that. And so the ability for Biden to increase taxes, especially given all of the preoccupation around coronavirus, I think it's going to be murky at best that Biden is able to garner the support to increase corporate tax rate, even if he is elected. Secondly, with respect to your point about trade, I think it's become fairly clear that Biden won't mark a significant departure from the Trump administration with respect to China relations. But I do think a Biden presidency will represent a modest improvement over Trump in two ways. First, I think a Biden administration would likely take a slightly softer line with China. You saw increased rhetoric around the Trump administration and China last week. I think while there wouldn't be a significant departure from that, there would be at least more moderate rhetoric coming from a Biden presidency, which I think would help international relations. And the second one, I think, is that a Biden administration would bring a lot more certainty with respect to trade and international relations. And of course, the market and businesses hate uncertainty. I think that would represent a positive. Finally, if Biden is to win, There's one positive that I see as it relates to investment grade credit, and that's the creation of an infrastructure program that would be very stimulative and likely help the economy. I think that would be a much more popular program for Biden to institute, uh, especially given the pandemic and the the state of the economy, as opposed to uh, an increase in corporate taxes. So I think the potential for Biden to institute these policies that would be unfriendly to business and unfriendly to the economy might be a little bit overblown at this point, just given that if and when he takes office, the economy will be in a really bad place and business profitability will be in a bad place. Finally, there is the potential for a Trump surprise, which continuity would be a positive for investment grade credit. Like you've mentioned, it's not outside of the realm of possibility, given where prediction markets are putting that that event right now.
0: All right. Well, Dan, I think that pretty much sums up the bullish and embarrassed case for credit spreads over the remainder of the year. I hope you enjoyed the way we broke things down. We'd love to hear feedback from you if this is a good format or not, and maybe one you'd like to see repeated in the future. Finally... <laughs> A quick note that II season is officially here a little later than normal, but it has arrived in September this year. And we just would like to say that we'd greatly appreciate any support that you can give us. If you find our written work or our podcast beneficial to you in your process, we'd appreciate that feedback in the II. It would mean a great deal to us. Specifically, we are asking for your vote in the federal agency debt category, as well as investment grade credit and short duration. So, uh, Any support there would be be much appreciated, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Enjoy kickoff, all you football
2: fans. See you next week. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macro horizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative.
1: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Fimo assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. dot com slash macro horizons slash legal.